Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been looking at the maturity or the maturing process of the church at Corinth. We've been seeing God work in this church and knowing that God had started His work through the good news of His Son... And he had continued to grow them with different people, different emphases, different individuals working in their lives. And you see this maturing process. But when you recognize this, you recognize that this church had not arrived to where Paul had hoped that there would be or that God would hope that there would be. Really, there was a long way to go. So as we looked at this scripture, as we talk about maturity, as I was processing it in my mind today... I thought that it would not be appropriate for me if I am to demonstrate maturity in my life. It is not appropriate for me to mention how Ole Miss won over the most elite teams. It would certainly not be appropriate for me to mention how the state of Mississippi is in total celebration today after both of their teams are five. It would not be appropriate for me to speak of such things, it would not be appropriate for me to say that there were two Louisiana universities that I know of that was involved in blowouts last night and only one, which is located behind our sanctuary, being the one who blew out the other individual, right? Not going to say a whole lot more. I'm just saying to you, I want to demonstrate maturity today. Because that's what we've been talking about in the Scripture. Well, certainly, seriously, in the Scripture, Paul had been encouraging them to find maturity in Christ. And he wanted them to grow in Christ. He did not want them to stay where they were. And listen, sometimes we can arrive at great places in our lives. And we can see how we have come to a certain place of maturity. How we've grown in our knowledge of the Scripture. How we've grown in our service. We see those opportunities, and that's great. But I would say to you that we should never be content where we are, but we should always be attempting to grow in Him and mature in Him. And what Paul is doing is he is showing them areas in which this church at Corinth could actually grow. And as you continue to read through chapter 6, you will see how God will speak and give them a new concern as they grow in Christ, a new concern for believers, a new concern for even the body that God has given them. I think you hear this expressed by the Apostle Paul. I want you to look, if you will, in verse 12. Verse 12, as Paul speaks about his own concern for his fellow believers, his concern for other believers. He says in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, Paul continues this conversation that he's having with the church at Corinth. He's spoken to them about some of the things that they're facing. He's spoken to them about the sexual immorality that is left unchecked there in their midst. He has talked to them about brother suing brother. He's challenging them to live a different standard. And here he speaks about a concern that he has 
for his fellow believers. And notice what he says. As he's thinking about his fellow believer, he's asking himself a couple of questions. One, he says to himself, I think, in his relationship to other believers, he says, what is most beneficial or what is most helpful to the kingdom of God? That's what he says. In my relationship with other believers, as I am about my business, what is most beneficial to the kingdom of God? Now that, I think, could revolutionize, bring a radical transformation in our lives and our relationships when we recognize that there have to be those moments where we make a conscious decision, what is the best for the kingdom? Not what is the best for Reggie, what not is the, what, it's not the best for an individual, but what is the best for the kingdom of God? And Paul expresses it, this, he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. He said, there are a lot of things that I could do. There are a lot of things that personally I could partake in. But not everything is beneficial or helpful to the kingdom of God. And he had just given us a scenario earlier in this chapter, had he not? He had just presented to us an issue that the church at Corinth was really facing. And that was that one brother was suing another brother in the court of law. You remember that. You, you got that sermon last week? Shake your head because you don't want to go through it again this Sunday, okay? Not even a mini-sermon of that. But last week we talked about how one brother was suing another and how that wasn't appropriate, not in the sense that they didn't have the privilege or right to do it. They certainly could. Paul said you could do it legally. But overall... It was not helpful to the kingdom of God. Now, again, think about it if you and I were to relate to other people in such a way. We were able to think about our rights and who we were, and yet we were to couch that in the bigger picture of what is, the, what is helpful for the kingdom of God. That is, yes, I know that I could say some things. I know that I could do certain things. But if that doesn't help the kingdom, why would I do that? You see, that's where I think you start growing in spiritual maturity, right? And that's where this second question comes in. Not only what is helpful to the kingdom or beneficial to the kingdom of God, but what is truly consistent with personal freedom? What is truly consistent with personal freedom? Now, most of us like to talk about our freedom and our rights. I mean, think of it just a moment. How many times have you ever heard somebody get up at a business meeting and say, I want to make sure that here today I express my sense of responsibility to everybody else that's here? You ever heard that before? Now, I know not many of us would ever say such, but I could envision a business meeting scenario where somebody would stand and say, I want everybody here to know today that this is my right to not only speak, but to act. Some of you don't want to speak today because you know you might be guilty of that, right? We are much more prone to express our rights than our responsibilities. 
And we're much more, much more prone to dwell upon the rights and the freedoms we have as opposed to the accountable nature of being a part of the body of Christ. Much more. And what Paul says is that we ought to look at the big picture. What is it that we are doing that's contributing to the kingdom's growth? What are we doing that's somehow contributing to God's gospel going forth? And what is consistent with our own personal freedom? Because it's interesting what Paul says here. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, this is the irony that when you insist upon personal freedom in your life, you actually find personal defeat in your life. Isn't that ironic? That I'm going to insist upon my personal freedom. And how many of us would not like to again speak about the freedom that we have? But he says, what happens is that All things are lawful, and I could insist upon my personal freedom, but in the end, if we're not careful, we experience personal defeat. He says here, he says, I will not be brought under the power of any. That word power is the word that's sometimes translated authority. In other words, as I express my freedom, before I know it, I find myself enslaved to other types of authority. Let me give you. A, let me give you an example. I had to stop and think about this one because I'm struggling a little bit with this in my own life, and that is like my pleasure, my would you call it pleasure enjoyment that I have in the simple act of eating. <laughs> Some of your souls bear witness with my soul this morning I can enjoy it and I have freedom God has not said you cannot have lemon ice box pie thank you God that you did not say that God didn't say that but if I'm not careful I can come under the power and the authority of lemon ice box pie I'm giving you my own weak area, okay? You say, Brother Reggie, I can't even identify with what you're talking about. But for me personally, what I'm saying to you, there are all kinds of things we can enjoy, and God wants us to. God has not said, you shall have no joy in your life. More Baptists need to hear that today. God's not said that you need to keep yourself from any idea of pleasure or privilege. He didn't say that. But what he says is you must be careful because all things are, are free for us. All things are good for us. But if you're not careful, you can come under the authority or the power of those things which you so love, which you have so committed yourself to. And as believers, we can stand for our personal rights and our personal freedoms But in the end, we can experience personal defeat. Again, going back to the same context that Paul had been addressing in this chapter. What did Paul say to those who were taking their brothers to court? He had said to them that you may win before a public tribunal, but in the end, 
the kingdom of God loses because the testimony has been stained before unbelievers themselves. And I think that's what we need to be reminded of. What is it that will help move forward the kingdom of God? If there is something that will move forward the kingdom of God, then I'm okay with giving up my personal right or freedom so that I can see the gospel move forward. That's a mature believer. That's a mature believer who has a concern for other believers. And that's what you see here is that Paul has a concern. And he basically allows those two questions to dictate his relationship. What is it that is most helpful to the kingdom of God? And what is really most consistent with personal freedom in our lives? What is it that we can engage in and what we can do that will not lead to personal defeat or for us to come under the authority of other things. I think that's what Paul says as he expresses his concern for the believer. Well, as he continues on writing, though, he not only mentions his concern for other believers, but he mentions God's concern for the body itself. Now, this is interesting. If you'll read through here, you'll see that God is interested in our physical bodies. Now that seems so disconnected from some of our thoughts. Some of our thoughts today is that God is just concerned about our spirits. This is a spiritual relationship we have with Him, and thus it is on a spiritual plane, and there's nothing to do with the physical body. It doesn't affect our physical body whatsoever. And yet here, Paul after confessing his concern for other believers, actually highlights God's concern for the body itself, for the physical body. Notice what he says in verse 13. I think here he begins with a quote from the Corinthians, something like this. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. Some of you are about to get excited all of a sudden. I see you having a charismatic moment as here. It says, foods for the stomach and the stomachs for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. If this was a Corinthian slogan or saying, what was meant by this is that, you know, food is going to go to the stomach, the stomach was made for food. In the end, it really doesn't matter because our bodies are going to be destroyed, the food's going to be destroyed, everything's going to be destroyed. It does not matter what you do with your body. That's really the idea behind this. That's the Corinthian slogan or motto. We do whatever we want to with our body because it does not matter before God. God is most concerned about our spirit. And Paul comes to dispel this myth. And he comes to remind them that God is concerned about the body. He will say, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We're going to talk more about this. But here he basically says that the body is made for the Lord and for His purposes. He continues on. He says, verse 14, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Paul uses this idea of the resurrection to remind us that God is concerned about our bodies. He says that one day God will raise up our physical bodies in His own power and in his own strength. Isn't that still the hope of the believers today? I mean, 
I, look, I'm good that at the moment of death, my spirit goes to be with the Lord. I'm pretty good with that itself. I am. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So at that very moment that I take my final breath here on this earth, I'm before the presence of Christ. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. But let me tell you what is also good and perhaps even greater in a sense is that one day when Christ Jesus returns, what he's going to do for all of those believers who have died in him that are in the graves, he will deliver them from that bondage of the grave and what you will see one day will be a victory dance like no other, greater than what happened in the state of Mississippi last night, I promise you. It will be a victory dance in which the believers of, in Christ will rise and that one day he says that he will transform those old decaying bodies and he will bring them into glorified bodies and there will be something of a celebration that day, my friends. It will be awesome. It will be tremendous. And that is the ultimate hope of the believer. Why? Why is he? I mean, if we're our spirits with, with Christ, I've had people say before, if our spirit is with Christ, why is he concerned about our body? Well, one, he wants to demonstrate his ultimate victory over death, hell, and the grave. And one of the ways he does that is through the resurrection. Look at Jesus in his own life and look at the ultimate victory he'll bring to believers. But also this. When God saves us, he saves all of us. He's not going to allow anything, anything to be totally defeated, even by the grave itself. He's concerned about you, and he's concerned about me, and he's concerned not only about our spirit, but he's concerned about our whole redemption, the body itself. And Paul says that you ought to know that God is concerned about your body because one day... He's going to resurrect that body. And he's going to give you a glorified body. You need to know that God is concerned. And I think as you continue to flesh it out in the scripture, you see why he's so concerned. One, God looks at us and what does he say? He says, I've paid. I've paid for that body. And that's what he said in verse 20. In verse 20 of this chapter, he says, For you were bought at a price. I bought you. Literally, the terminology that's used here is one of an individual who is there in the New Testament world on the slave market. He is out there for all to bid upon. He is there for all to see and to look upon with shame and disdain. And in the midst of that market, your Lord and my Lord stepped up to pay the price. And it wasn't a cheap price. The price was the blood of Christ Jesus our Lord. But he bought us. He redeemed us. He brought us out of slavery and he granted us freedom and today somewhere along the line I believe we ought to walk and talk as the free people of Christ 
And so conduct our bodies in a way that would exalt him. As we're going to talk about even as we move through these scriptures. But in a way that we're going to exalt him. Because we are his. Too often we walk around. We carry on our conversations with the price tags still attached. Well, I thought I might could illustrate this today. And what I deemed a few weeks ago to be the best way to illustrate this was to give you just a little bit of my own culture. Introduce you to one of my heroines, one of the greatest individuals to probably ever live. Some of you will recognize this lady who was a mainstay at the Grand Ole Opry for many, many years. Also would make regular appearances on a little show we called Hee Haw. Just went off of television up in North Louisiana, up North Mississippi that is, just went off of television. They had been working on it live for the last, what, 40 years. Just went off up there. You remember what she is known for? Well, that she would come in and she would give you a familiar greeting. That was kind of frightening, was it not? To which you would have responded as you did. And almost in a frightening nature, there was a conversation that was begun. Now, it was great for entertainment. It was great to be able to be reminded of this lady who had this trademark of wearing a price tag. But I would say to you today that there are too many spiritual many pearls. What do you mean by that? That means that God has bought us. Isn't that what he said? He said, I paid the price for you. I had the exact amount. You don't have to pay any more. I took care of the whole thing for you. And if I did that for you, you don't have to go around wearing your price tag still. You don't have to go around in some way trying to pay the price or to find a job that will somehow work you into the kingdom. All of that's been taken care of. The price tags have been removed and you are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Paul says. He says God's concerned about our body because he paid. But he also says, you can take many down now if you'd like to. (laughs) He also says, that the body is important to God, that God has a concern for the body, not only because he paid, but because he made. He what? He made us part of his family. He made us to be a part of the body of Christ itself. Isn't that the the way he reasons here? Back in verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord 
is one spirit with him. He says that you are a part of the overall body of Christ. That here you are in your spirit, in your body, and that it, it's as though that you are the hand of Christ or you are the foot of Christ. You are the member of Christ. And he says, why would you think in any way that Christ's body would be unified in immorality, he says. He says, it does not make sense. He says, I've made you a part of my body. And because of that, because of that, he has called you to purity. He's called you to live a life of holiness. He reasons here, there's no way that Christ would engage in such immorality. And if Christ would not engage in so, such immorality, neither should his own body. That's what he says. So he says, I've paid, and I've made, and I've stayed. Get this. He says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own. He says, I've stayed. The Holy Spirit has indwelt each and every believer. That means if you're a believer in Christ, what the Holy Spirit did at the moment of salvation was come in and begin to dwell in you. That's what happened. Well, Dr. Reggie, isn't it one of those moments that you know that you come to a realization of who the Holy Spirit is and it's like a, it's really when you start maturing and, and, and then all of a sudden you get the Holy Spirit. I, I mean, isn't that the way it happens? I mean, I'm not sure I've got the Holy Spirit in me right now. I was saved, but I'm not sure. I, isn't it, I, I'm waiting for that second blessing. When that time comes, when I've truly matured in Christ, truly understood, and then all of a sudden God's presence comes upon me. Isn't, isn't that the way it happened? No. That's not the way it happens. I would even give you the Corinthian church as a case in point. I just have belabored this over and over, over that he or the believers who are there at Corinth that they are not mature Christians. They're anything but it. And yet he looks at those immature believers and he says to them, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. He came to dwell in, in you. The temple. The word that's used there for the temple is the word that is used in the New Testament to describe the holy of holies or the very presence of God within the temple itself. It, it, there's another word that's used sometimes that speaks about the whole temple complex. And you'll know, if you study any history, Jewish history, you'll see that there was a huge temple complex. And there are words that can be used for that. But the word that is used here is to speak about the, the place of God's dwelling. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you remember how sensitive they were to that place, to the Holy of Holies. You remember how access had been denied only to the high priest. 
You remember how even then he had to take great precautions before he moved or went in. You, you remember that this was God's presence among the people. Now listen to what Paul says. Paul says that holy of holies, that place of God, that now dwells in you. And when I was growing up, we often, just as I had this morning, and I think okay and appropriately called the church, the sanctuary, the house of God. We, we talk about that. And remember, there are certain things that were permissible here and certain things that weren't permissible. You remember? I walked in one... Let me tell you where I came from in such a way. When I walked in one Wednesday night at Blue Springs Baptist Church, I walked into the sanctuary and I was the youth minister at that point and the youth were running and going and they were jumping over pews and they had they were playing some form of baseball the spirit of my mother came out in me <laughs> I was appalled righteous indignation took hold of me and I was somewhat expressive and bold in the way I spoke to them. But properly understood. Properly understood. This sanctuary is not the temple of God. Properly understood. Your body and my body. Are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And we should be so appalled that we would engage in things that would lead us to unrighteousness. So God's concerned about the body. So get this. Paul says, I'm concerned about believers. I want to live with this principle. What's best for the kingdom? What's most consistent with my personal freedom? He says, God's concerned about your body. God would look at you today and he would say, I've paid for it. I've made you into who you are, into the family. And yes, I've stayed right there with my presence. So how does this translate into our lives? It translates into our lives in such a way that we should have concern for both. Believer and body. Believer, as I've already mentioned... We should live each and every day in our relationships with other believers of what will help them grow in Christ. What will help them as we advance the kingdom of God? What will be the big picture that God will allow us to be a part of? That's the concern for our believers, fellow believers. But our concern for our bodies. Well, he gives you two practical ways in which to demonstrate your concern for the body. He says in verse 18, he says... Flee sexual immorality. Flee. The, the word flee is in the present tense here. It means ongoing. It means continuous. It means that you have to keep on fleeing. If it were only good enough to face temptation once, defeat it, and then, then never have to worry about it again, right? If that would be good enough, but even after Jesus' temptation, you remember it says that Satan left him for a season. 
You have to constantly be on guard. And you, and you just simply flee. Many of us place ourselves in situations of temptation that God never intended us to be a part of. Well, I just felt... If we would have planned and if we had really thought about it, we could have removed ourselves from certain temptation. Yes, I know there are moments... Doesn't James say when you fall into diverse temptation? Yes, I appreciate your biblical scholarship this morning. But wouldn't you agree that there are moments that we have placed ourselves in those temptation circumstances and situations? And times when we ought to simply flee. There, but I'm a, I can handle this. Some of us need to embrace what I call the gingerbread man theology. You would expect nothing else from a preacher from Mississippi, would you? When my kids were in those early grades there at Zachary, I think it was in kindergarten or so, they would have a gingerbread man hunt. Something like that where they would have to go and they would have to find the gingerbread. And, and they, they would come home every day. It was one of the most irritating things you will ever face. When they come home every day saying, run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. I'm like, when is this unit over? I mean, y'all have been on this six weeks. But I'm going to say to you, some of you might not like the gingerbread man theology idea. Maybe you want to call it the Joseph theology idea. That is, when you are in a situation and you see that temptation there and you know that you're about to compromise or even the temptation that you might compromise, get out of that place. Joseph ran. There are moments we need to run as fast as we can to get away from that temptation in our lives. That's what Paul says. He even gives us a little bit of hint here. I don't have time to talk about it in full today, but he just simply says, because every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, there's something that is particularly devastating, he says, about sexual immorality. Then in verse 20, he says, as we express our concern for a believer and for body. Yes, we're to flee, but the positive side, I love when he ends on a positive note. The positive side is glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Glorify in the present tense again. In other words, it's not just good enough that you stop and you glorify him on a Sunday morning. It is a present tense ever-present reality in our lives that we are to glorify God with our body and our spirits. Because there's no disconnect. There's no dualism. He wants all of us. And He wants us to demonstrate His glory in our actions. I say to you again, if we certainly think of ourselves as the temple of the Holy Spirit, who we are, where we place ourselves... Would not that radically change the way we would conduct ourselves each and every day? 
there was a little chorus that came out years ago, Jeremy. We used to sing it a little bit in our churches. It went something, went something like this. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving. I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Some of you know that. Would you stand and sing that with me this morning? Would you just stand? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving. I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Is that your prayer this week? Would you be a sanctuary of the Almighty God, fleeing and glorifying as He leads you? Let's pray together. Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you that, Lord, you have paid for us, that you've taken control of us, that you've, Father, that you've made us a part of your body. And God, I just pray simply this morning that we would be your people and that this week we would be your sanctuaries, expressing your life and your liberty. And this week, Lord, that you would find us pure and clean as we serve you. God, there are some areas of our lives you need to transform and change right now. And I pray through this invitation that you would give us the boldness and the courage to allow you to do it. Father, save that one which is lost. Reclaim that one which has gone away. And help us all in this place to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we have this hymn of invitation. Would you come as God calls?